The Start On Demand. On this Friday the 13th edition of the podcast, we are going to talk about two Winnipeggers who were attacked near downtown, and one of them fought back. He spoke to Global News. You will hear the fire and passion in his voice. A fight is brewing over what to do with the Everett Mansion on Wellington Crescent, located at 514 Wellington Crescent. Some want it to be preserved as a heritage site, while others want to tear it down and build some condos. We learned today that Winnipeg Jets defenseman Dustin Bufflin has been granted a personal leave of absence, and we'll talk about the sounds that annoy us. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday the 13th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and nowhere to be seen, McNabb. Just waiting for the clomp, clomp, clomp. Come on, where is it? It's only 6.05. Yeah. She's waiting for 6.07 to come, so. I wonder if that's how it went, like, on TV, you know, because 6 o'clock rolls around, (laughs) she's calm, cool, and collected. Was she, like, running up to the desk as the the news stinger was playing? No. I don't think so. No? no. How long? How much time do you figure? 30 seconds? A minute? Two minutes? You got no time. TV, the time is the time is the time. I thought it was the same in radio, too. Yeah. We'll get her. We'll oh, get she's in the control out. room. Hi, she's just going to hop on the microphone in the control room. Oh, she's trying to talk yeah, to us. Yeah, I'm here. I can hear you. We can we see you. Maybe I'll just do it from here so you don't risk me chucking things at you. You're going to throw things at us. I'm going to throw things at you. Why? I feel like you're talking pretty harsh about me for a Friday. We're not talking harsh. I'm, I'm actually curious. Like, uh, how did it work in TV? Well, she probably can't hear oh, us because she doesn't have headphones on. She needs to put headphones on. I had to be on time in the studio, but there's three of you, and I'm printing out the lineups and juggling a fact that Macklin's segment is six minutes long when it was supposed to be four, you know, things like that. Then he didn't tell me. Okay. So he just drops that into the wheel, and I'm like, oh, I'll just deal with that two minutes extra. So, you know, I'm doing things. I'm working. I can start printing the lineup if you want. I got no problem not, with I that. Yeah. Airing of the grievances. It is Festivus early here on the start. And I guess feats of strength are coming next. <laughs> as long as Loren stays behind that glass, I think we'll be okay. We yeah. won't have to deal with the feats of strength, but if she comes in the studio, feats of strength may be on the agenda today. So at 637, we're going to talk, what is it, the Everett Mansion? Yeah, and you know... I think it's kind of a confusing situation for a lot of people, but there were a lot of entertaining things said back and forth in the conversations. A mansion on Wellington Crescent, 514 Wellington Crescent. Jeffrey Thompson, businessman in the city, bought this mansion uh, from the Everett family. Uh, Senator Everett uh, done so much great work in our community. The assertion has been that he bought it with the promise to keep it a single-family dwelling, Subsequently made an application to demolish the house to build eight luxury condos. Uh, The neighborhood, not very happy about that. You may recall back in June that uh, people from that neighborhood, from River Heights, actually blocked demolition equipment from going onto the site. So they were successful in halting the scheduled demolition and appeal had been filed and that appeal was heard yesterday and there was a ruling made. Oh, wow. Okay. So So looking forward to to that because it's a neat looking old mansion that whole i 
when I used to walk to work, uh, when I used to work the, when we did our afternoon shift, I would often work, walk to work. So I'd walk from Cordon and Harrow, up Harrow, just straight across Academy to Welling and Crescent. And just the old houses on that street, man, uh, like there was that one big one that burned to the ground. And that was a real shame because it was so beautiful. Uh, so the idea that one of these, when you see these old houses go down, it, it there's a part of me that's kind of sad. You know, it's a piece of Winnipeg's history. But then there's also that part, and yes, I've arrived. Hi! Hi, Loren. <laughs> there's also that part, too, where, there, like, where's the balance in preserving the heritage of a city and also moving forward? And right. so the argument, I could see myself, say, you're elected to City Hall, you're torn between moving forward and keeping things preserved. And I don't know where you'd end up every single time. That And that, twice a year, someone's at City Hall saying, please don't tear down this building that's beautiful, right? Yeah, and then that's why it's a point of contention because there are people that don't own the property that feel a connection to it, that feel it's a part of our heritage, part of our history, part of the landscape of what's been in your backyard or your front yard for years and years, and we're adverse to change, but sometimes there is a reason for that, and, and the, there is a compelling argument to be made for preserving certain buildings, uh, but... There is, I think, the word balance that you used, Loren, that that needs to be struck here in order to move the city forward, because that's valuable property. Lots of more people clamoring to live closer to the city center. And if you go to Vancouver, if you go to Toronto, if you go to Calgary, uh, very um, intensive redevelopment of these older neighborhoods, regardless of whether or not they're 25-foot lots, 50-foot lots, or if they're mansion-like estate lots. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is just sort of the future of big cities where people who have the means would like to live closer to the city, but they don't want to live in a 120 or 130-year house. They want to live in a brand new home. And so there's a market for that, and there will be people attempting to take advantage of that portion of the market and, and those consumers. Worth pointing out as well, the, the route that I walked, I did not walk past this particular property, 514, because it's uh, south of Academy, uh, right across the street from 529 Wellington. But uh, I have often walked past this home and wondered, like, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. So while, I, while Because it's it becomes to see an it go, eyesore, too. No? Kind of, yeah. Right? You sort of wonder, like... It, is no one there or is can they not afford to keep up the home? So I do appreciate the the need to, if, if no one's using the house, take it down, put something new up. And there was that, we, a couple of years ago, there was that consternation about that property that Ventura wanted to develop at Harrow and McMillan. And that was an empty, pro, empty lot. It was just a, a, a field of weeds. It that, was gross. That's another part of the problem. You have this development. Someone comes in and says they want a development. Nothing's being done there. And then we have the debate again. And, and then I don't, I don't mind debating it. But if you keep opposing things, the lots stay empty. You look at the St. Charles Hotel, downtown Winnipeg, Notre Dame and Albert. It is, I think it's been 10 years now. It was designated a heritage building, I don't know, at least 10 years ago. It's sat empty since. It's ugly. It's an eyesore. The sidewalk caved in on it two summers ago. People couldn't walk around it because nobody was doing anything with it. And so there's that whole balance. I don't want to look at that either. It was one time a beautiful old building, sure, but it's nothing now. So we'll talk more about that at 637. Also on this Friday the 13th, by the way, at 707 High-risk sex offender back on the street. Mackling is fired up about it. Sent out a passionate email yesterday to us. I, I just I don't understand. I guess I have enough comprehension of the law that I do understand the logistics of how this happens. But as a citizen, as a father, 
I get infuriated when I see people coming back on the street that have such a long list, such a long history of criminal activity, and we continually re-release these people back into society. They mm-hmm. continue to commit crimes, and it's just this revival, revolving door that so many of us are frustrated with. So hopefully we can get some answers as to as to either what we can do to stop the revolving door or better understand why it takes place in the first place. I'm going to play a little audio at 635 just to tee that up. It's a story that we've done in the past. As soon as Greg sent that out, I said... The same person, said, not just in a general no, sense. No, I said, Greg, this guy, we've Jeez, been talking about this. For me to get we've been talking this. about this guy for years. His name comes up at least twice a year, either because he's coming out of prison or they've... He's violated a parole parole condition. And they've They're him. looking for him, and oh, now we've arrested him, mm-hmm. and we're putting him back in. So just this whole nature of what's in the best interest of not just your safety but your dollars—that seems like a huge waste of resources, too. A fight has been brewing. Uh, speaking of uh, of things that are dilemmas, over the fate of a Grand Winnipeg home with a long history, which was slated to be demolished in early June of this year. The 110-year-old mansion at 514 Wellington Crescent has attracted a group of concerned citizens hoping the city would revoke the demolition permit issued for the property. You will remember that uh, people showed up and and blocked the demolition effort scheduled for June 7th. The building, also known as the Gordon House, we've heard it referred to as the Everett Mansion, after its uh, original owner business uh, James T. Gordon was set to be demolished in order to make room for condos. That decision made by the city went to appeal yesterday. Here's a montage of guests, all of whom joined Richard and Julie on the news yesterday afternoon, trying to sort this all out. Winnipeg City Councillor, St. Vital Councillor Brian Mays is with us. He was part of that process. Ultimately, what was decided today? Well, I've decided it won't be a booze-free night for me as originally planned. The appeal lost on a 2-2 vote. The appeal was against uh, a decision made by city staff to invoke a heritage status for a, a district of a couple of hundred homes, one of which was five 14 Wellington. So in short, um, the demolition freeze continues. Cindy Togwell, she is with Heritage Winnipeg. Tell us a little bit about the history of this structure. Well, it's got an amazing history. One thing, um, the home was built by a Winnipeg architect, C.C. Chisholm, and he designed the home in Georgian style. And it was built in 1909, 15 years after Wellington Crescent was named. And as you know, there were caveats on Wellington where homes had to be built by a specific criteria and uh, set back. Mr. Everett decided to sell the property to Jeff Thompson and Mr. Thompson wanted to and still wants to demolish it and put up condominiums. That is actually where it all started because the uh, grassroots advocacy group and Heritage Winnipeg were patiently waiting for the rezoning hearing and unbeknownst to us at the 11th hour found out that he was approved based on a single family dwelling. So I think at the very um, get-go we're very confused as to what the intentions were of uh, Jeff Thompson. I'm a buyer and I look to buy a property and everything looks good to go and it doesn't appear that it's designated a heritage building and I buy it and then I'm faced with this. That's that's pretty unfair in my book. 
Well, I suspect this one may end up in the courts yet. Uh, there, were, there was a tension there of obviously people, the owner would probably make that argument. On the other hand, the people in the neighborhood made the argument of we've been talking about doing some sort of heritage district status. Um, this, once it's demolished, it's gone and the building was over 100 years old. Old, so the I think the director of planning here, in good faith, made a decision to invoke this heritage status. And speaking personally, I I've been trying to get some more protection for parts of my ward. I, I thought it would be inconsistent if I denied that to other wards. I looked at what was presented today and made my decision. John Blueberg is a Winnipeg developer and real estate agent, passionate about this issue. John, how did you see things as they unfolded today at City Hall? Just to be clear, I I work for developers. I myself, uh, I don't think I'm insane enough to develop my own money in Winnipeg. I I actually hear most of that development money uh, calling for an emergency and leaving the province uh, because today is just another example of the the inept attitude that our city has created towards the development community. Councillor Janice Luce and Councillor Kevin Klein, who were in favor of the demolition order on 514 Wellington Crescent that Mr. Jeff Thompson was given uh, as he followed the full rule of law and he followed all of the rules that would allow him to tear this property down. I was extremely disappointed that the head of property planning and development, SPC, Chair Brian Mays, as well as Sherry Rollins, who are both members of the Executive Policy Committee and guided by Mayor Brian Bowman, likely had made this decision prior to even entering the room. So I think there's a bigger message here. And the message is, is that there could actually be some political corruption going on within our city. A pretty bold statement, you might say, but one that should definitely be explored. What happened today in terms of private capital is unacceptable. I will just say, to quote Taylor Swift, you need to calm down to John. You, you know, you're making allegations of corruption and uh, prejudging. Um, it was a it was a long hearing. People had the chance to put forward. There was, you know, the rule of law is um, we followed the procedure that was in the city bylaw. If people think there was a breach, they can go to the courts. Now you guys know why you, I was listening to Taylor Swift for 40 minutes this morning. At least you could hear it in the background. I the, wondered. The process continues with appeals and perhaps court challenges ahead. We welcome your feedback. We've we've already been receiving it at 780-6868. Yeah, and we did. We had a text message that came in a little while ago uh, suggesting, you're saying, good morning, the house is right next to the exit driveway beside St. Mary's Academy. The house is still pristine and impeccably kept on a day-to-day basis. The only eyesore is that demolition company fence surrounding it. There has been someone living slash occupying the house on a regular basis. I am my daughter, whom you know, S.M. Uh, Bako, who was an author that I think you guys spoke to her one day when I was off mm-hmm. this year, uh, graduated from there in 2007 and I in 1969. Samantha goes there on a regular basis, acting as a mentor to today's students at SMA. This is not a case of an old, rundown, derelict home. Far from it. It is rich in Winnipeg's history, even having a complete ballroom on the top floor. Mentioned in the long history of SMA, that from Trisha. Trisha, thank you for that feedback. A ballroom in the house. I'm sure it's amazing. I, I think something has to be put in place, though, that if you own that building and you can't develop it, 
then can you put it up for sale? And if it doesn't sell in a certain amount of time, then can you revisit the conversation? Because at some point, something has to happen to keep it either to its current status and glory or move on. Yeah, it's always easy to judge what other people should do with their money and their property. And Loren, we were talking about this off air. I used to own a what would be considered a heritage building in Minnedosa. It was over 100 years old when I bought it. Nobody in Minnedosa was interested in purchasing that building. There was zero interest. When I purchased it, people wondered what I was up to. But Why did you buy it? But if you had torn that down, had I Greg? announced intentions to tear that building down, People would have been up one side of me and down the other, as my mom used to say. No one wanted it, but they want the say in how to how to keep Correct. it, to use it, or sell it. Hey, you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? <laughs> guys, guys, guys! <laughs> still funny. It is. Yep. It really is. 25 years later, it's still <laughs> funny. So we've been, we have a whiteboard in our newsroom with where you can just throw up assorted topics. And for like three months, maybe four, five, six, I don't know, there's been this random pocket of topics that have gone unused. And one of them is annoying sounds. Do you, do you remember, McNabb, how that even ended up on the board? Yeah, Hal had sent out this email about the top most annoying sounds and why they bother us. And it was about some research that was done about the part of your brain that reacts to certain kinds of sounds. And so, of course, on the list were things like chalk on a blackboard, fork on a glass, ruler on a bottle, nails on a blackboard, a female scream was one of them, baby crying. <laughs> Don't you dare. Am I the baby crying or the no, female screaming? No, the scream? female screaming. I never scream. <laughs> So it had us talking about all the things that annoy you or make you cringe, like get that shiver going, and I uh, wanted to hear what everyone thought. Should we demonstrate yours? Yeah, go for it. Okay. No, or don't, but I'm going to plug my ears. Okay. So, Loren, you know the, so this is a, bo- a thing of Clorox disinfecting wipes. It doesn't, this doesn't matter the brand. It's those tubes where you pop the top. Let's just get this right up to the microphone here. Okay. Loren hates the- Did you do it? Well, I'm no, gonna, not yet. No. I'm about no. to do it now. I just, I got to put it through, put it in the chamber. Because it's got that little catch thing, so you got to plug it in there, and then there. <laughs> she asked me to. She asked me to pull one of those out of there for her the other day to clean my she, desk because she won't do it. <laughs> so that that's an interesting one. It gives me a uh, whole shiver, and I can't. I don't know. There's something about it that's like it's. It's because the paper's dry and it pulls out, and it makes me like uncomfortable. So do you hate pulling out a, a Kleenex? No, not the box? same sound. Okay, but it, uh, that that's thing's supposed to be. Moist. Yeah, it's not. Like <laughs> <laughs> also on the list of words that annoy me. <laughs> what about you, Jeff? Um, my I don't like the sound of chewing gum. I hate that uh, a lot, and also loud cars and motorcycles, as we've discussed previously. No. <laughs> oh, okay. But so gum chewing uh, makes me. I start gagging, and I just can't handle it. Like so even you don't if it's chew nice, gum? never. Like, what you know, people can do it with their mouth closed. Like, you're, it's I not still even don't just like the it. like. Oh yeah, that, all oh, of it's yeah. bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, some here the, the results published in the Journal of Neuroscience <laughs> show the ten, the top ten most unpleasant sounds are a knife on a bottle, like clinking. I don't know. Why I, would you yeah. ever do that? Yeah, weddings yeah. or something. Maybe? I gotta cut through this bottle. Unless <laughs> <laughs> you're doing the sabotage with a uh, bottle of champagne. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, kind of a weird, weird thing. thing. Bottle opener or something. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, the uh, next one is a fork on a glass, <laughs> which you hear at a wedding all yeah. the time. Chalk on a blackboard. Not a thing in 2019. 
Not really. I don't mind the sound of chalk, but the scratching. Nails on the blackboard, yeah. yeah. That's terrible. There's that, was it Jaws? Where yep. they do that? Quint does it. Yep. Uh, ruler. Y'all know me. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I won't do his whole speech. <laughs> a ruler on a bottle. A lot of bottle-related sounds here. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe uh, get rid of bottles. Yeah. yeah. Nails on the blackboard. We previously yeah. mentioned the female scream. Disc grinder. I don't even know what that is. That sounds like surgery. Like for metal? That, that's yeah, that's, what, yeah, right. that's yeah. where you have that uh, steel wool. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Squealing brakes on a bicycle, mm-hmm. uh, baby crying, and an electric drill. Hmm. So, okay. We got lots coming in from our listeners. Yeah. The First dentist one, drill, probably. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, leaf blower, <laughs> one of our listeners said. Yeah. Uh, that That's one that's uh, popular. Uh, my nephew with their high-pitched squeal screams for no reason. People chewing, says Shauna. Dave's is great. Mosquito buzzing around your head while trying to sleep. Yeah. Yes. That's a Manitoba mm. answer if ever there was oh, one. Oh, that yeah. is so, and you can't, you got to get up and get it. Kelly, oh. what's yours? Well, aside from hearing you cackle at 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Uh, neighbors who put their dogs out on a Saturday morning. And then go back to bed. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> we, I remember <laughs> when we lived in Charleswood, oh, uh, how my wife didn't start a fight. But she <laughs> she would get up out, out of bed, go to the back door, buddy, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> buddy was the name of the dog that yep. was a... Uh, perpendicular across the back. Not even your so dog. Yes. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how about this one, Kelly? You might remember this one. That is the Edmonton Oilers oh. horn. It is the Long. sound of it's defeat and disappointment of my youth as the Edmonton Oilers mm. continually pounded the Winnipeg Jets into obliteration in the playoffs year after year after Gosh darn year. I've got a weird one. Um, for me, it's when somebody whispers like really close to my ear. For some reason, it jolts me. It jolts my leg. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm... my leg starts kicking. So I, I can't listen to the... That just means you're, you're into it, <laughs> No dude. sweet nothings for you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's weird, man. It's weird. Right, keep texting us, 204-780-6868. I'm going in there right now. It was a warning to Manitobans that a sex offender with a lengthy criminal record had just been released from Headingley Prison. Winston George Thomas's first conviction was in 1999. In 2003, he was convicted for breaking into a woman's home and sexually assaulting her. In 2008, he was sentenced for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old. Since then, he's been in and out of prison for assaulting a peace officer, for crimes like aggravated assault, and of course, violating his parole conditions. I was furious when I saw this, uh, outraged, uh, lots of superlatives come to mind. The fact that we get these news releases, Brett, Loren, on a regular basis is one thing, and you sort of become immune to them at a certain, certain point, but I took the time to read this, A, because it was unbelievable how long this list of convictions and the things that this man has done over the years is outrageous, and the fact that he's back on the streets has me absolutely fuming. So Scott Newman is a criminal defense lawyer. He is not Winston George Thomas's lawyer, to be clear, but he is someone who understands the system, and he joins us now to answer some of our questions. Good morning, Scott. 
Morning. How are you doing? We're well, thank you. But we're, we're perplexed, as some are, when they see stuff like this and hear stories of someone going kind of that revolving door, so to speak. How, how does this happen? What happens when someone gets convicted on a, on a sex offense like this? They've been notified that he's a, at risk to reoffend, but the public would say, well, OK, then why does he get to come back out? Well, the, uh, there's a lot of different tools that the justice system has to deal with individuals that pose a risk. And they start at the low end and they can go to the high end. Uh, the most serious that I think most people know about is a dangerous offender, where somebody is uh, such a dangerous risk to uh, commit something that's uh, terribly aggressive or a pattern of repetitive behavior or of such a brutal nature that we say that person has to be locked up for the rest of their lives. And in fact, most dangerous offenders die in prison. So for them, a life sentence really means you're going to be locked up for the rest of your days. But we as a, as a society, I think, say that's really the last resort. We don't want to pull that as the first club out of the bag. We've got to be really sure that before we send somebody to jail for the rest of their lives, that we're sure that this is the person that needs to be locked up for the rest of their lives. When the criminal justice system itself, and, and and I don't know who this comes from, I don't know if it's the police that that write this up, Scott, or if this is uh, uh, comes from somewhere else, but th- this is what it says with relation to this individual, and I know you don't want to talk about this particular case, but in a general sense, this individual is a convicted sex offender and is considered a high risk to reoffend in a sexual and or sexually violent manner against all females, both adults and children. What more do we need to hear about an individual that says, okay, you are on the other side of that line and you're on the other side of that line permanently? Well, let's let's put it like this. What does high risk mean? High risk sounds bad, but if I told you that a high risk was 70%, that 70% uh, chance of reoffense, is that sufficient to, to say that we need to go like Tom Cruise and Minority Report and lock people up before they've committed offense, that you're essentially punishing them before they've committed any crime, right? He's been sentenced for the offenses that he's committed. Uh, He served his time for that. And as a society, we say, once you've done the crime, once you've served your payment to society, you're done. Now, imagine if I told you, rather than dealing with this particular type of high-risk offender, I said, Look, 70% of the people that are charged with murder are guilty, and the other 30% are innocent. That we're getting 30% of them wrong. Would you say it is acceptable for three out of every 10 people serving a life sentence to be in jail wrongfully? I think we would say no. So out of 70% of these high-risk offenders, if you say 30% of them will never reoffend, are we going to send them to jail for the rest of their lives, not having committed an offense? knowing that 30% of these people will not commit any future offenses. Well, this guy's got a lie. We have to be really careful to be sure that the people that we're sending to jail for the rest of their lives are, are higher than a high risk that are a very high risk. This guy's actually a category above that. This guy's criminal history is quite extensive. Why are the sentences when he, when he does reoffend, why are the sentences not longer? Well, for particularly for uh, people who are one step below dangerous offenders, when you get into long-term supervision orders, those sentences do tend to be lengthy. They can be 12 months, 24 months, 36 months uh, in that range. And the long-term supervision order uh, tends to be a 10-year order. So you're supervised for 10 years. 
Now, I don't know if this particular offender that's that's the subject of this has a long-term supervision order. It seems to me that he's certainly got a probation order, which is usually sufficient because you can have, for these people, once they're identified as high-risk offenders, they are closely monitored and supervised, as you can tell. So if this is an individual, for instance, that has a curfew that says he has to be home by 7 p.m. every night, he's going to be He's going to tell his probation officer before release, where are you going to live? I'm going to live with my mom. The first night, they're going to be checking that house. And if he's not home by 7 p.m., you can bet your boots that they're going to be issuing a warrant for his arrest then and there, and they're going to take him into custody. If he has a condition not to drink, they're probably going to be saying, you need to see your probation officer five times a week. And if he shows up with any alcohol or drug signs, they're going to be arresting him then and there. They're so tightly supervised that they're they're, uh, breached quite often within 24 to 48 hours if it's somebody that has that kind of difficulty complying with the order. So to that point, though, then, Scott, they are spending a lot of time in prison. And it seems like an incredible drain on resources. Rather than have a, a bigger sentence to start with, they're in and out, in and out. And so to your point of it, it's not being fair to put someone in prison, you know, for just because they might commit a crime. Well, he, he's still going in and out over and over again on these minor offenses. And so that seems also equally perplexing on, on a dollars and cents basis. Well, it's better that we're actually sentencing him for breaches that he's committing rather than giving him the big shot, in my view, and sending him to jail for the rest of his life. Because incarcerating people is incredibly expensive. And I think you've seen that in the experience in the States with Texas, with California, with Nevada, who have all drawn back from three strikes legislation saying if you commit three offenses, you're going to jail for the rest of their life. Because it bankrupts the, the state and it would do the same to us if we did that for everybody. The Auditor General in 2014 said it costs more than $200,000 to build a bed just to build a facility to hold somebody in custody, and it costs certainly over $100,000 a year for each offender that you want to hold in custody. So it's actually cheaper and more efficient to tightly supervise these guys, give them the chance to reintegrate into the community. If they fail, if they're in that 70% that are going to reoffend, go ahead, incarcerate them uh, for one, two, three years and try and get them to a position where they can get out in custody because if we're going to just lock all these guys up, we're going to have a lot of wrongfully uh, held people, and it's going to cost us a fortune to house them and feed them and, and keep everybody safe. Scott Newman is a criminal defense lawyer joining us live on 680 CJOB. Scott, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it, sir. No problem. All of the best. Yesterday, I got to go behind the scenes for a tour, and it was super neat. We do have more tickets to give away, by the way, at the end of this segment. So stand by for your cue to call. It's like a little village back there. From the main entrance on the north side of the lot, it just looks like a big tent. But if you head around back, there is a huge assortment of trailers. And when you walk into the main tent from the back, there's a costume room. There's a little recreation area. There's an area where they can relax. Then you go through the curtain and into the arena. Isn't that part of a Megadeth song, Greg? You remember the song Crush Em? <laughs> Into the arena. Yes, I like that. The lights. It's a great lyric. Good pull. Yeah. And uh, so you walk into the arena, and when we went in, it was super dark because they were rehearsing at the time, and it was a full rehearsal, like with the lights and the music. And so the woman who led me in, her name was it was uh, Mommy, 
just cruising through it. I could almost see nothing. And I felt like she was, look, she kept looking back like, where are you? Like, hurry up. But I didn't want to trip. Like there's stuff on the floor. Eventually the lights started flashing and I was able to pick up the pace. So because they were rehearsing when we walked in, uh, we just sat down so I could get some pictures and some video, which you can see, by the way, on 680CJOB's Instagram. There's a couple of posts there. One of those performers on the aerial straps was Laís Camila. And I had a chat with her after, and she explained to me that like every other Cirque show, it's not just a series of acrobatics. There is a story, there's a theme. So she explained what Amaluna is about. It's this island that it's governed by goddess and uh, the daughter, the queen's daughter, she fell in love for Romeo. So it's uh, inspired in a Shakespeare story. It's also like a love story. She's from Brazil, by the way. So she was concerned. Where the first concern she's, she out, laid out was, my English isn't that great. So Magnificent. It's wonderful, yeah. yeah. And the accent is absolutely fabulous. Yeah. So as for her background and how she got into Cirque. Came from Circus School. My background, it's Circus School. Mostly aerial things. I did a little bit of ballet and um, different classes, but mostly it was Circus School. Okay. And how, like, how old were you when you started that? 12, 11, 12. Yeah? Yeah. Have you ever hurt yourself? No. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm very, very happy and lucky. Yeah, yeah. never. I mean, we do have injuries that our body feels when we get on our 30s. <laughs> it's very different than when we were 20. And the warm-up, everything changed a lot. Yeah. The recovery. Next question. When did you know you belonged in the air? I was very privileged because um, I always liked, since I was a kid, I was watching like gymnastics and everything. And um, I was privileged enough to, for people to lead me. So things were always happening in my life. I have to say that I'm best in the air. <laughs> I'm not really great on the floor. Um, but yeah, I think it, it just life just took me in this way and then it's what I do best. So like, have, has there ever been a point where you're scared up there? I'm more scared on the floor. Like if you ask me to do a backflip, I would be, yeah, like it, in the air, I feel, I feel safe. Yeah, my, my hands are my own safety. So yeah. I trust them. But it's a teamwork, right? So we need to trust also our colleagues. We have rigging team. We have automation. We have the stage management. It's, um, yeah, it's a nice teamwork. What is interesting about performing in the air, like any performance, but you need to be confident and you need to be 100% there. Like you can't miss it. You have to, to be focused. So. so watching her perform and rehearse, the intensity and focus, as she mentioned, was there in full. But this is her job. We all have off days on the job. We all feel some doldrums mm-hmm. or have bad days. So I asked, I mean, you do this all year long, pretty much. She goes home for like two weeks in the year and then he gets the odd week here or there but she's on the road most of the year do you ever get bored out there not really for me the hard part is when the body don't respond as much so like sometimes fatigue or you're tired or if you didn't get like enough of sleep could be like a little bit hard or even like temperature when it's too cold or too hot like sometimes our body just changes but Besides that, it's I'm honored every day to perform on stage, like different audience, just to get the energy from them. It's just great. Now, if you Google Laís Camila, which is spelled L-A-I-S, 
C-A-M-I-L-A. You'll immediately find videos that some fan of hers has posted, videos of her just training, and she is a beast. Like, I didn't know there were that many stomach muscles on the human body. <laughs> she doesn't have a six-pack. She's at least got a two-four. It's crazy. <laughs> She's just a powerhouse, which means she probably eats like a horse. I mean, someone who's that physically mm-hmm. active has got to be Burning pounding. all those calories. Oh, I know. The energy she needs to do what she does. But she says she can't eat it, just everything. She's got to be careful. I eat everything, but I need to watch out. I try to avoid a lot of things like fried. And- like for for most of us, if we eat fried foods, we just gain weight. But it, does it? How does it does it affect your performance? It's um, for my body. It's harder on my shoulders because we hang. So if I put more weight, I get heavier. So it's more impact on my shoulders. Okay. Or like Christina, she hangs by her food. If she has more weight on, it's more impact. So it's a way to keep my body healthy. Yeah, I mean, she is. Uh, she's up in the aerial straps for most of the time she's out there, uh, and she's watch when you watch the training videos. Like, there's one where she's doing. She's on the the pull up bar, but she's not just pulling herself up. She's pulling her feet up over her head, like with without breaking a sweat. Well, I'm thinking of uh, the finest grandfather clock in the world, a finely tuned instrument. It's so precisely weighted. Any change in that is going to throw her off. Yeah. So a fascinating conversation so far. What else have you got? Well, I finally did have to ask. So you're from Brazil. I have to ask because it's what Winnipeg does. You happen to arrive in Winnipeg. When it's particularly cold and miserable, <laughs> is that what you had been told about coming here? Yeah, yeah. It's I have I have to say that uh, winter is not my favorite weather. So oh, it, this isn't even close to winter. I know, I know. But <laughs> in Brazil, we have the lowest is like five degrees Celsius. So here is already fifteen. So this is my winter in Brazil. Oh. So I'm already feeling like <laughs> a little bit miserable. Laís Camila on the aerial straps as a Valkyrie. She brings the storm to the stage, and you can see pictures and video of the rehearsal at 680 CJOB's Instagram. We would love for you to follow us there, and you can see her perform during the run of this show, which starts tomorrow. Because you can win tickets right now if you can tell us at two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. And I actually had a question in here, but I changed it. I changed the question. I'm going to keep the theme going from the what we were doing earlier this week with the Las Vegas theme. In which hotel is the Cirque du Soleil show Zumanity? And Forte, that's the question. I gave you that answer already. I had one in our script here, but the answer I gave you is the correct one. In which hotel is the show Zumanity? 204-780-6868 for your chance to win tickets to see Cirque du Soleil Amaluna. I'm glad you changed the question because I just about gave away the answer anyway. The really? question was going to be where she's from. Yeah. And I was just about to say, well, where she's from in Brazil, it's 24 degrees right now, but they are <laughs> expecting rain tomorrow in Rio. And that really would have... Greg Macklin's the whole situation. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I did it to myself, too. It would have Macklin and McGarry the situation. It would have been a 3M mistake. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Earlier this morning, we were talking about this Winnipeg couple sharing their story of a vicious attack that's not only left them battered and bruised, but questioning how we are dealing with crime in this city. The couple work at the corner of Portage and Carlton, and in Devin Cousin's words, he's one of the victims. His job is to help people. He sends roadside assistance to stranded drivers, and 
didn't like the feeling of being on the opposite end, being the ones calling for help after he and his girlfriend were approached by a group of strangers as they were leaving work for the day on Monday. It was just after 10 p.m. About halfway along the side of the building is when we noticed two girls and a guy walking towards us. Kind of started feeling uncomfortable. And then, then they asked us what time it was, and I instantly knew they were trying to just get me to pull up my phone. I knew they were looking for phones at that point. So I waited until after we just got past them, pulled out my phone kind of out of view, and then told them it's 10.07. And then she asked for a lighter, and Rebecca said no, we just want to go home, just leave us alone. We turned to go walk away, and that's when I noticed the girls swing at Rebecca, and I defended us. So Devin says the attackers came at them with what appeared to be rocks, a brick, and a hammer. Here's what he remembers. Being on the ground, getting held down, being in the hit, hit in the head with rocks and stuff, hearing noises, craziness. Um... I remember being thrown in a puddle, and then I remember getting up and kind of squaring off with the guy, the first guy, and um, he went to go pull a big, like, a brick out of his pocket, and it kind of clipped his pocket and fell on the ground, so I freaked out and lunged at it and grabbed the rock before he could and kind of swung it at him to get him away from me, and he backed off and went to go take off, and that's when I noticed one of the other girls come up behind me like she was about to attack me again, and I just spun around and hit her before she could hit me and she kept on coming at me I hit her again hit her again I think I hit her a total of three times and finally she was on the ground every time she kept on trying to get up I just would kick her down and say no you're staying here until the cops get here we are calling the cops and you are getting busted that obviously really angry there and in that moment saying to himself himself you're not getting away from this which is why he reacted the way he did and and I Thankfully, he's doing okay. He's got a bruised eye, a blackened eye. He's he has bloodshot eyes. He uh, was talking about a, a wrist that's too sore. He can't work. He obviously relies on a laptop and a computer, and his arm has been hurt in some way. So he'll he'll be out for a, at least a few days. Not to mention the damage to your psyche. His oh. girlfriend was telling Global News she obviously no longer feels safe. Uh, doing her job at Portage, Portage and Carlton. So they're going to look at the options that are, that are there. I think there's a safe sidewalk strategy you can take. You can call, sometimes you can call the downtown. Biz has its own patrols. You can bring them in to walk you to and from your car. There's different things you can do. But it had me asking, A, how would you react in that moment? And then do you actually have a plan in place for when you get into certain areas or positions or times of days? And I was saying, I do. I I. Having worked downtown, and it's not even about the downtown, having to sometimes leave work at night and being alone in a parkade. And I would feel that way in any parkade, I want to be clear. If I was alone, I would have a strategy. Well, you and I have used the buddy system. Brett, you and I have used it at different times. We've had different things go on in the Polo Park area. We're, you're not immune to it. Who just called me last it's- week? I was on the way to work and said, I'll meet you downstairs because there was you, Brett. Did you not? And said, there's someone here. I'm going to meet you by the bottom of the stairs. One uh, of you did. One of the two of one us One of you have did. Done anyway, that. the point was you saw something. You and knew so I would be coming to work. I'm just going to meet right. Loren just to make sure. Exactly. And then you, you – actually, I met you one day, and I was outside waiting for you, and you said, I thought you there was somebody wondering, what are you doing outside waiting for me? And it's – well, you know, I don't know. Foolishness, I suppose. I should have waited inside until you pulled up, but – I guess that indicates that for as conscientious as I think I'm being, I'm maybe not thinking ahead to what 
I do in the eventuality or the case of somebody confronting me face to face at three in the morning or three thirty in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, no matter where you are. But you know, hey, you can make all the good decisions in the world. Three years ago or two years ago, I was on my way here. We were doing a show together in the morning, and I made a, a self, a very conscious effort to go to a particular 7-Eleven on my way in because I needed a banana. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to stop at that one because of the neighborhood it's in. I'm going to stop at the other one. And the other one got robbed while I was standing there waiting to pay for my banana. Which Are you is, kidding? Which is a great point, though, right? You, you think you're, you know about... <laughs> Sorry, did your banana get robbed? No. Sorry. No, no. I wanted to make sure that no, I didn't no, miss that no. there. I paid but, for the banana. But they got robbed. It, you made, went all of your way to these quote-unquote safe places. The place I thought was soft, uh, safer ended up getting robbed. And it's just, it's unfortunate. You just really cannot plan your way out of these things necessarily. Yeah, you know what? You deal with it like injuries. So when you with Dustin, he missed half the season for us last year, and that's true of all players that you. And and again, we may hit opening night and not have any of these, but all three guys back in the lineup. So we go out for uh, at camp, and we've got uh, direction we want to move the team in, in terms of style of play, and uh, we also need to assess some of these new faces coming in and, and see where they fit. But that's the the purpose of camp. What direction is that all some of those Part of it is the personnel change, right? So getting to know those guys and style of play that you're capable of playing. Um, I don't think there's any secret that the quality of our defensive game can improve. We felt it was really strong at times over the last five years. And then, you know, where you're talking about going from fifth to 15th in the NHL in terms of goals against in that area. You want to make, there's a, an obvious area that you can get better. Winnipeg Jets head coach Paul Maurice, live on 680 CJOB. Kelly Moore joins us now in studio, Mackling McGarry and McNabb. Kelly, your reaction to what you just heard? Well, not uh, surprising in the least uh, that Paul Maurice would protect the privacy of his player, which every coach or general manager would do. Uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it's said in true Paul Maurice fashion, nothing sinister is happening here. Uh, and, and the one point that he made, and I think it's something that probably uh, we should probably uh, talk about, and that is uh, that uh, for however long this lasts, one of the things about Dustin Bufflin is, A, he has shown a great ability to be able to come back into a lineup after a lengthy absence uh, from injury and play as if nothing ever happened. So I think Winnipeg Jet fans could probably certainly take some comfort in that. Uh, and the other thing is, too, uh, that Paul mentioned, he missed about half the season uh, mm-hmm. with injuries last year. Remember early in the year uh, when he was out, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago, and he was out fishing with Matt Hendrickson. And then, of course, last year he had some injury issues uh, as well. So the team has had to learn to play stretches without Dustin Bufflin. So he was granted a personal leave of absence as of today. The two things out of that with the very brief comments on it, yeah. it they didn't see it coming. So it's not like it was right. something they saw coming. It was new. And then, again, to your point, his quote from Paul Maurice coach is, there's nothing sinister to this. He needs some time, and he was given given it. There's no timeline attached to this. No. And just for those that might be tuning in, this is not an injury situation. 
Well, I we would suspect that is not the case. I don't know that 100%. All I know is he's been given a personal leave of absence. That's what I know. All right, Kelly Moore joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Mr. Moore. And Winnipeg Jets Fan Fest is tomorrow, by the way. That's from, what, 8 until 4, I believe? That runs all day. And uh, just a heads up, because I didn't know about this until last night, you can actually get tickets in advance. I know they've moved some of the activities that are typically outside. They've moved them indoors as a precaution because the weather's been so lousy this week. Looks like it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. But some of the, if you've attended the event in the past, uh, some of the uh, attractions and some of the events that normally take place outside have been moved indoors. So you'll want to go to to uh, winnipegjets.com and get your tickets for that ahead of time. They are free. There's no charge. Uh, but just they, gets you in. J- just, just helps you get you in and probably speeds up the process because... Uh, there's a finite capacity, not only for the site, but also, of course, for the training sessions that are super popular. They're typically lineups for that. And then because the attractions and some of the other things going on have been moved inside, you're inside a building. That means fire marshals are involved. So there's a capacity for those things as well. So you just want to take care of business ahead of time. And for those who were listening and tuning in for the 9 o'clock press conference with the news conference with Coach Paul Maurice, it, that wasn't called because Dustin Bufflin has asked for this personal leave of absence. They were always going to talk to the media today for the start of training camp. Right. And they had just addressed that situation at the start. So if you're listening and thinking, I didn't get anything out of that, a, you probably weren't going to, but B, they didn't call it for that reason. Exactly. And uh, I guess it's unfortunate because this comes on the heels of a tremendously positive announcement yesterday afternoon that uh, the Jets have signed uh, defenseman Josh Morrissey to an eight-year extension, which means he's a Winnipeg Jet for this year, plus eight more, unless uh, something else happens in terms of a trade or, or something. Uh, Morrissey signing a contract that a lot of people are commending the Jets for, they're commending Morrissey for. Uh, the terminology would be team-friendly, $6.25 million a year. I know that's an awful lot of money for a lot of people, but in today's NHL, for a, a guy who's likely to become an assistant, if not the captain of the Winnipeg Jets at some point, one of the, the best defenseman outside of Dustin Bufflin, maybe their second best defenseman. I think he's their best defenseman. Personally, uh, it's an absolute bargain. It's a steal for the Winnipeg Jets moving forward to have him in the lineup. We're very excited about this because we always like talking about Winnipeg's history. And I have a book in my hands, and we've put some pictures up on our 680 CJOB Instagram that are featured in this book. It's called A Diminished Roar, Winnipeg in the 1920s. It's written by Jim Blanchard, who is a retired academic librarian of the University of Manitoba. He served as a former president of the Manitoba Historical Society and is also the author of Winnipeg's Great War, A City Comes of Age, and... Winnipeg 1912, and now he's written this book about the 1920s. Jim, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the 1920s, what drove you to delve into that part of Winnipeg's history? Well, I think to begin with, I was just curious. I didn't know anything about what went on here in the 1920s. So uh, I started to look at it, and um, it was actually a, a decade when a lot of things changed. And I think a lot of things that we're familiar with now probably started in the 20s. Like before that, 
Winnipeg was a real boom town, almost like Calgary, you know. People were making lots of money. But with the first war, that all came to an end. And, um, you know, things things started to look more like modern-day Winnipeg. So the, the beginning of the 1920s was more or less the, the beginning of the end uh, in terms of Winnipeg's prominence as Canada's third city, so to speak? Yes, I think so. Um, one important thing that had happened was that the other prairie cities like Calgary and Edmonton had really grown a lot. And uh, so Winnipeg had competition. Before the 1913 or before 1912, there was no competition. So everything really was located here. And um, people were making a lot of money. But um, after the war, there was uh, an inflation that was one of the main causes of the strike because even if you had a job that was paying you okay, you, you were having trouble feeding your kids and so on. And um, the, the whole Canadian economy kind of slowed down and um, there was lots of unemployment. Lots going on. And like any good book, your two great characters, three great characters, four great characters all at play at the legislature and also at City Hall. Let's start with City Hall because it sounds like there was two opposing forces, one looking to have more um, public services in place and another looking to boost the city and and make it a tourist mecca, so to speak. Yes. Well, the big story that everybody kind of talks about in the 20s is that uh, a bunch of uh, independent labor guys were elected after the strike and some of those men had been in jail. They had, they were some of the people who were put in jail after the strike. And so there was a solid group of people. They, they were never in the majority in the 20s. In the 30s, they did manage to get a majority and uh, controlled the council for a while. And on the other side were what I've called the liberal conservative counselors, you know, lawyers and so on, who were... Um, representing the business community and, and were conservative. And um, there were several issues that these two groups fought over. One was the ownership of the street railway, the uh, independent labor group. And uh, Seymour Farmer was kind of the leader. He was the mayor for a couple of years. He was our first socialist mayor. And um, he really campaigned for... Uh, the street railway to be owned by the city. And um, he did some other things, which were were good things. He built the, he shepherded the, the work of building the, uh, the uh, what they called the standby plant. The, the city had a hydro system that the city owned, and uh, the electricity was produced at uh, Pointe du Bois, at the dam. That was the only dam we had then. But you needed a standby in case the, there was a storm, and there was a storm, big storm that knocked down a lot of the uh, hydro lines. And um, it took a while to get back online. And the, uh, the private company, they had a standby plant down where the baseball diamond is now. And so they had a coal-powered... That was the steam plant, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I remember it myself. I remember it uh, when they shut it down, yeah. and uh, and then eventually they had to tear it down, and and it led to the decay of a lot of the buildings in downtown Winnipeg in the seventies and the eighties because it produced steam heat that was distributed around the around the downtown. Correct. That's right. The um, 
part of the standby plant that the city built was um, a steam plant. They had huge boilers in there, and they ran lines uh, to a lot of the buildings so that those buildings wouldn't have to have furnaces and ash piles out at the back. And it was quite brilliant, actually. Yeah, it worked really well. And, uh, I mean, the U, the U of M has the same kind of system. And there's a small system there that heats the legislative building, same idea. But, um, of course, when they closed that, I forget the year, but it wasn't that long ago. No, it would have been in the 80s, I think. Yeah. yeah so. Everybody had to buy furnaces. And right, <laughs> so. right. So it, it caused a lot of consternation about the future of the, of the buildings. But um, I might have sent you off track as I'm apt to do. <laughs> I was about to even do the same, so keep going. So, it's fine. So Mayor <laughs> Farmer uh, obviously initiated this. This was sort of the, the backfill uh, for Point Dubois. And, and, then, and then there was some change after that. What happened next? Well, um, I think towards the end of the 20s, the private company, which was Winnipeg Electric, was a really successful company and uh, the kind of the business community always tried to protect it. They didn't want it to be uh, bought by the city because it, it paid really good dividends. And uh, um, I think they started to cooperate a little bit, which is a sensible thing to do. They had they made agreements about okay, the private company is going to do the the countryside, and the the city company is going to do the uh, city. And um, they got together more. And the, there wasn't so much animosity and fighting. Um, but in the meantime, things sort of slowed down, right? And, and, and Things and slowed down. Between 1920 and 1925, there was a huge amount of unemployment here. And um, one big driver was the fact that the wheat, the price of wheat fell, as it will do. And um, one of the reasons it fell was that our customers in Europe couldn't afford to buy wheat from us. And um, but also Argentina and Australia and India all came online after the war. During the war, nobody wanted to ship grain in on the ocean because they would get torpedoed. But uh, then all these uh, all our competitors were selling grain. So that was a that's a disaster for Winnipeg, which completely depended on the the wheat wheat business. And, and the farmers, too, a lot of farmers just walked away from their farms because they couldn't pay their taxes. They couldn't pay their mortgage uh, with the kind of prices they were getting. So, And I'm guessing that had a huge implication for Bankers Row and all the independent banks that had popped up uh, on, on Main Street in particular. Yeah, sure. Everybody was, was really hurting from that. What? And, um, uh, and I have a section where I sort of talk about the how the city kind of retreated. And speaking of banks, the Union Bank was the bank that we owned here. And the Galt family had a, you know, the the wealthy families all had huge uh, chunks of the uh, of the stock. And um, there were several things happened. The manager of that bank, the sort of general manager, was uh, uh, speculating in currency. He shouldn't have been doing it. He wasn't telling anybody that he was doing it. And he lost a ton of money, so that hurt the bank. And then uh, the stock price really fell, and that spooked everybody. So the Royal, when the Royal Bank came along and offered to buy it, 
They, everybody just said yes. And, of course, Union Bank was the Union Bank Tower, the first skyscraper right. in Canada, a lot of people will say. Did we, did we sell it out of desperation, or was it more because we just didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore? Like, was it just kind of washing your hands of something? Because you mentioned the city kind of walked away. Well, a lot of banks went under, a lot of smaller banks went under in that f- five years because we were in a recession. So when they... Um, when the thing with the speculation happened and the price of the stocks went down, it scared the the stockholders and the bondholders. So they weren't in a mood to sort of fight and try to save the bank. And um, the Royal Bank offered a nice deal. Everybody got Royal Bank stock. and uh, But, you know, in the old Winnipeg, that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, because people were more aggressive before the war. They were building what they thought was going to be a big metropolis. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.